Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. I promised myself that when I became a pastor, I wouldn't read poems. And yet, I think I've done it like three times this year, right? I came across this this week, and it's on the screen in front of you. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man. When God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part. When he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed. Watch his methods. Watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands. While his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands. How he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes. When he uses whom he chooses. In which every purpose fuses him by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. Where we're headed this morning in Genesis 32 and 33 is this. This is our big idea. God blesses his servants with his wounding presence. We're going to see this in three phases. We have a lot of text in front of us this morning, some 60 verses, but uh, the large swath of things is we'll see... uh, Jacob returns to find Esau uh, in Genesis 32, 1 through 21, and he prepares to kind of see Esau face to face. In fact, that word face is going to highlight a lot of our passage here this morning. And then in the second phase, in 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 chapter 32, uh, Jacob sees God's face. He sees God face to face in, in verses 22 through 32. And then in Genesis 33, he finally sees Esau's face face to face, he meets Esau, and he says that he sees God's face in the face of Esau. We want to pull all of these things together and see exactly what God has for us in Genesis 32 and 33. But here is the overarching principle. God blesses his servants with his wounding presence. See, we're reminded that if God is going to call a man, if he's going to shape a man, he has to first bring him into his presence, which wounds us, which shows us our sinfulness, which shows us who we truly are, and then he establishes a new identity for us. And we'll see this in the life of Jacob in particularly. Start with Genesis 32, verse 1 through 21, as Jacob prepares to see Esau's face. See, what happens is Jacob leaves Laban's presence in Genesis 20, or 32, verses 1 and 2, and, and as he's leaving, he runs into these two angels in, verses, uh, in verse 1. And he describes that, uh, this now it describes as two camps. And in verse 2, he names his camp there Mahanaim, which means two camps, right? Because what he's recognizing is he has his people, he has Rachel and Leah and all of his wives and all of his children and all of his livestock, but then in the midst of them, there are these angelic presence there. There is the presence of the spiritual in his midst. See, throughout chapters 31 through uh, chapter 33, Jacob is being introduced to two simultaneous realities, 
There's the reality of the physical world, that a world that contains the Labans and the Rachels and the Sheeps and the birthright Sheeps. Sheep. That's the plural of sheep, right? Sheep and birthrights and all of those physical things around them. And then there's also this spiritual reality. There's a world of promise and blessing that his forefathers have taken part in and now Jacob has entered into. And what God is initiating in Jacob is the idea of participating in the world of promise has ramifications for the physical world that he lives in. See, if he's going to receive promise from God, he's going to live it out. And so when we get to verses 3 through 8, I'm just going to summarize these for you. Jacob makes contact with Esau, and he's afraid. Uh, What happens is in verse 3, Jacob sends messengers from his camp to see Esau to say he's coming. And and we kind of see his message to him in verses 4 and 5. At first, he kind of says, I've been with with Uncle Laban, right? I've been out with Uncle Laban in, in case Esau's been wondering where Jacob's been for the last 20 years, right? Verse 5, he, he tells him of his wealth. He says, I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male servants and, and female servants. But this isn't necessarily to boast. What he's trying to do is he's, he's showing his purpose after that in verse 5. He says, I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. I have all of these oxen, all of these donkeys, all of this livestock, and some of it is going to be yours because I want to make restitution. See, Jacob knows there is an issue waiting for him in Canaan. And even geographically speaking, uh, Jacob could have fulfilled the command of God and gone back to Canaan without ever having made contact with Esau. Esau lives in this city called Seir, uh, and, and Jacob could have gone back to Canaan without ever actually having seen Esau. But instead, he goes and intentionally makes contact with him. But here's what happens in verses 6 through 8. The messengers come back with kind of some limited information. And we see this report in verse 6. He says, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. That doesn't sound like a welcome party, does it? 400 men sounds like an army. And Jacob responds naturally in verse 7. He was greatly afraid and distressed. See, immediately Jacob then responds and he divides his camp into two camps. He splits Rachel and Leah and he separates and he says, if one is attacked, then I can preserve the other. And he's making plans for what happens in the worst case scenario. But this is where we see a different Jacob in verses 9 through 12. And we're going to read this portion in Genesis 32, verses 9 through 12, because what happens here is Jacob actually prays to God in verse 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant, for with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude." See, 
as we break down this prayer of Jacob, we see three different kind of phases. The first thing is that Jacob recognizes God's faithfulness. He recognizes his faithfulness to his fathers. And he starts off, oh, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. He's recognizing that this God has introduced himself to Abraham and Isaac before him and been faithful to them. And he recognizes God's faithfulness to him personally. Look at verse 9. O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. He remembers that he formerly had nothing when he came to Laban and Padanaram. Verse 10, he says, for with only my staff I crossed the Jordan, and now I have become two camps. And it's with that introduction that then Jacob moves into the second phase, and he makes his request in verse 11, please deliver me. Notice that he appeals to God to preserve his family. That's what he highlights, the mothers with the children specifically. See, what has become abundance in Jacob's lives, it's multiple wives, multiple children, multiple uh, livestock, all kinds of blessing. Jacob now has anxiety over that blessing. He now has fear in relation to that blessing. But he finally moves into this last part in verse 12 where he reminds God of his promises. Look at verse 12. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. See, Jacob pins the God of truth to his word. And now, Jacob seeks to leverage God's promises, his words, to his specific end, his protection. And that being prayed, and that being said, and the growth that we see in Jacob, he returns back to his plans in verses 13 through 21. And look at verse 13 with me. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. And what happens in verse 14 and 15, we see spelled out exactly what this gift looks like. It's 200 female goats and 20 male goats and 200 ewes and 20 rams and 30 milking goats and their calves and 40 cows and 10 bulls and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. And what he does is he sets them up in droves. So uh, he's going to present Esau with a wave of goats (laughs) and then a wave of rams and then a wave of camels, right? It's going to be like Aladdin entering whatever it is in that movie, right? All these kind of procession coming to Esau of all of this gifts that are coming to him. And he explains himself in verse 18. Look at verse 18 with me, where Jacob says to himself, uh, actually he uh, directs his servants in verse 18 to say this, These things, these animals, they belong to your servant, Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. Jacob's coming, but all of this is for you. It's it's from Jacob. And we see Jacob's specific intention in verse 20. Look with me at verse 20. He thought, this is Jacob, he thought, I may appease him, Esau, with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. See, the ESV actually makes a note that when he says, I will appease him, he's actually saying, I will appease his face. Like, if you're like me, you're thinking, I want to appease that guy's face, right? Like, it just sounds off. But what he's actually saying is he wants to turn the countenance of Esau's face from being angry to being happy. 
I want to appease Esau through all of this financial blessing, and that's my strategy, so that when I see his face, he's no longer going to be mad at me. See, Jacob still has a long way to go. He's shown some growth. He's turned to God in prayer. He's recognized God's faithfulness, but he still has this strategy. It's interesting to note uh, that in verse 20, when he uses the word appease, that that's typically a word that's used to describe the sacrifices in the Old Testament, that you would actually appease the wrath of God through these sacrifices or look forward to the appeasement of God's wrath in Christ. And so Jacob wants to atone for wrong, and his method is simply just financial compensation. It's as if to say, I stole Esau's blessing, and these 200 donkeys and every other animal I'm giving should suffice as restitution. See, it would seem that Jacob is trying to deal with an old problem in the same way. Jacob is right to see an emphasis on restitution, but doesn't seem to understand repentance. Jacob's the guy in the Bible who turned stew into birthright. He's the guy who made shepherding a lucrative practice. And now he wants to turn sheep and donkeys into peace. The truth is, we as weak people can be manipulated by our idols. And Jacob is trying to manipulate the idols of Esau to bring about peace. But here's the truth. Is while we may manipulate others in such a way when we kind of control their idols, Jacob will see that we can't manipulate God. And in the next section, Jacob comes into contact with one that cannot be coerced, with one that cannot be manipulated. Look with me at verses 22 through 23. The same night, Jacob arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. See, the author of Genesis is laying out for us that Jacob has all of his possessions, and in the middle of the night, he decides to cross a river. Now, I just want to highlight this. There's no spotlights. There's no streetlights here. Imagine crossing a river at night with little kids and livestock. This isn't a small undertaking. And Jacob is deciding in the middle of the night, in the twilight, to cross this river. Why? Because he's fearful and anxious. We can imagine that he has a sleepless night, that he wakes up and he wants to just do something, so he moves his family across the river. But look what happens in verse 24. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So there are parts of this story that seem intentionally vague. 
And as we kind of read through this account, we feel like we ourselves are left in the dark trying to figure out who exactly this person is and what exactly is happening. But we want to recount just the things that we do know from this story. And really, there's three things that happen. Derek Kidner says that Jacob leaves this encounter, and he says that Jacob leaves wounded, named, and blessed. Jacob leaves this wrestling with God with a wound, with a new name, and with blessing. See, Jacob is wounded. Let's talk about that from verse 25. After wrestling for a time, this mysterious man sees he's not prevailing. And what he does is he reaches out his hand, and he touches Jacob on the hip, and it dislocates his hip. And we might think, this guy's kind of weak, he's kind of frail. Jacob, the smooth man who likes the indoors, can't, you know, he's, he can't best this man. But then, in his sovereign power, he reaches out, and with a single touch, creates a wound in Jacob that he can't overcome. See, Jacob wrestles on, and he wrestles on specifically because he's looking for more blessings. So, excuse me, Jacob is receiving this wound, and then in verse 28, we see that Jacob is named. After some period of, of this wrestling, the man asks Jacob's name, and now we know that this man, uh, he's, he's not a man, is he? He's a pre-incarnate encounter with God he would have known Jacob's name. He's talked to Jacob. So what's going on here? If you know ancient Near Eastern kind of history and kind of uh, practices, if, if you had the name of a god, you could actually kind of beckon that god to your side. And so Jacob is asking for the name of God because he wants to have God under his control. Jacob seeks to name God so as to have him like a lucky rabbit's foot that he would pull out in the worst moments of life, that he would kind of pull God out when he needed him. He he wants to embrace his God when he is in trouble or in need of blessing. But instead, what happens in verse 27 is that Jacob gives God his name. Remember the name of Jacob, right? It was a big deal uh, back in Genesis 25 that Jacob was named what he was named because he and Esau were born, they were twins, born at the same time, and as Esau's on his way out of the birth canal, uh, Jacob reaches out and grabs his foot, and that's how Jacob gets his name. But it becomes kind of a, a metaphor so that Jacob is one who's always kind of undermining. In fact, he, his name might actually mean he cheats. At his birth, Jacob grabbed the heel of Esau on his way out of the birth canal, and he's been grabbing at heels ever since. Esau recognized this in, in Genesis 27 when Esau or Jacob has stolen Esau's birthright and his blessing. He says, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He's highlighting the name of Jacob's or the meaning of Jacob's name to say he cheats. In asking his name, God is moving Jacob to admit his own history of cheating, of grabbing heels. He grabs the heels of Esau, stealing his birthright, stealing his blessing. He grabbed the heel of Laban, stealing his wealth, but now he cannot grab the heel of God. As much as he seeks his blessing, his old tactics fail him. What happens is that God then gives him a new name. He's not to be named Jacob. 
he cheats. Now he's to be named Israel, which mean, means God fights. God took away the former name of Jacob with all of its shame and all of its guilt. And he grants him a new name, a new identity tied to the character of his God to say, God fights. I've striven with God. And it's in this that Jacob is blessed. See again in verse 29, Jacob asks for the name of God. It's interesting that God asks why. Why why do you want to know my name? Why is it that you ask my name in verse 29? And it's in this context, and the very next statement, is that God blessed him. Here's a man who has 11 children, all the livestock that he could ever desire. What blessing is there? And Jacob realizes God's blessing in verses 30 through 32. Look with me at verse 30 and 32 in chapter 32. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. See, Jacob is blessed by God to realize his mercy. He leaves the presence of God alive but limping. He leaves the presence of a holy God in the midst of his sinfulness still alive, still intact, still together, but somewhat different than when he came in. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells the story, or told the story years ago when he was alive, of, of a group of pastors that were sitting around. They were discussing a new preacher that was in their area. And one of the older seasoned veterans amongst them said, uh, he's very gifted. He, he has all of the skill sets of, of being able to read the text and preach and whatever else, but he doesn't walk with a limp. See, what Lloyd-Jones and others were describing is this woundedness in the presence of God that we would see our sinfulness and walk with a humility because of being in God's Presence. And what happens here is that Jacob is ushered into the presence of God, wounded, renamed, blessed, and sent out with this recognition that he's striven with God and men. And it brings about the adequate humility that God has brought about. See, Jacob has come face to face with God, but now he must also come face to face with Esau, which is what happens in Genesis 33. See, the first thing that happens as I summarize verses 1 through 3 is that Jacob sees Esau off in the distance and makes preparations. So in verse 1, he sees Esau. It's like the sun is rising, and immediately he starts to see Esau on the horizon. And he starts dividing his camp, and he, he makes preparations. What he does is he actually orders his children and wives in order of preference. This is the most awkward thing I can think you could do at this moment, right? Hey, those that I don't love as much, go up front so that if if you die, it doesn't cost me as much as if Rachel and Joseph die. And so Rachel and Joseph are put at the back, and then Leah and her children are put next, and then the two slave women with their children. And what happens then, and this is a difference worth noting, is that Jacob goes first. Look at verse 3. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Remember in the last chapter, what he said to his servants was, pass on before me. 
Go ahead of me. I don't want to see Esau first. We want to send all of this blessing and I'll come later. But now his attitude is such that he will go before, that he will bow himself in the dirt seven times before his brother Esau. If you remember back to the prophecy that Isaac said, the blessing that Isaac gave to Jacob who was deceiving him, uh, Isaac says that Jacob's brothers will bow down to him. And now Jacob is reversing that blessing in humility, recognizing his wrong, bowing before Esau. So what happens is that Esau finally meets him in verses 4 through 11. Esau runs. He hugs Jacob. He kisses Jacob and he weeps. It reminds us of the prodigal son and his return where the father sees the long lost son and runs to meet him and falls on him and kisses him and bestows blessing upon him. And then Esau meets Jacob's family and so all the waves and all their awkwardness. This is my my wife's slave and these are my children through her slave. And this is my first wife, Leah, and here is my second wife, Rachel. And he starts introducing his family to his brother. Finally, in verses 8 through 11, we see the difference. Esau asks, What what is all this company? What is all of these animals that you have? And Jacob explains in verse 8, he says, What do you mean? Or, excuse me, Esau asks, What do you mean by all this company, all this camp that I met? And and Jacob responds in, in chapter 33, verse 8. And he says this, he says, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. He saw this is, this is yours. This is me making restitution for the wrong that I've done against you. He goes on. Esau rejects the offering in verse 9. And Jacob continues in, in verses 10 through 11 and presses him to receive this gift gift. Look at verse 10. He says, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my presence, or accept my present from my hand. If if you've received me, if I've received uh, favor in your sight or grace in your sight, receive this gift. He's making it contingent. Like, if you have received me, then receive these things. He presses on again in verse 11, to say, God has blessed me abundantly. I have no need. Verse 10, he also recognizes God's grace in seeing Esau. This is such a significant statement. He says, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. See, Jacob likens this experience with wrestling with God by the Jabbok. He he looks past the issue of Esau and sees God's favor to him. The restoration that God is about to bring with Esau comes from the Lord. And in verse 11, he petitions him, please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. See, what happens here is Jacob meets Esau, he ingratiates himself to Esau by saying, I've done wrong, and so receive this gift. If you're receiving me, receive this gift from me. Well, that kind of denouement of all this is that Esau invites Jacob to come to his house and see her. 
come with me. Come stay with me. Let's catch up. And, and Jacob has this awkward kind of uh, response. You ever invite someone over for lunch and you can tell they don't want to come? Well, this is what, what's happening here in verses 12 through 8. In verse 12, Esau invites Jacob to travel with him back to Seir, but, but Jacob refuses. And he's, he said, well, no, I've got young kids and I've got uh, you know, the, the livestock with their, their feeding and all of this other stuff, so we're just going to go and take our time, but we will see you when we see you. And in verse 15, Esau offers to, to leave some of his army with Jacob to keep him safe. And, and Jacob responds, no, that's, that's not necessary. Why? Why does Jacob do this? Well, remember, God had called Jacob to go back to Canaan, and Seir was not in Canaan. And so when we get to verses 18 through 20, we see the purpose in all of this. Look at verse 18. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. And there he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. That, that term, El Elohe Israel, it means God, the God of Israel. See, Jacob has taken on his new identity as Israel, as the one whose name means God fights. And he builds this altar and he erects it. He builds his camp to say that God is his God. If you remember back to his, his promise, his vow that he made to God back what, chapter 27, I think it was, 28? He vows to God that if, if God takes care of him and brings him back to this land, that he, that is God, will be his God. And this is the fulfillment of that vow. See, not only has he left behind the name Jacob and taken on the name Israel, he has taken on this idea of servant to God. Not the one who makes his own fate or does what he wants. He is one who lives under the sovereign hand of God. This is a ton of text to take in. And so we have these movements where Jacob is fearful of his brother Esau. He prays to God, but he also plans. And he's planning in this way where he's just going to appease his brother with stuff. But when he comes into the presence of God, God wounds him. God names him. God blesses him so that when he faces Esau again, he comes to Esau in the humility of recognizing his sin, of going about with a different approach. See, God blesses his servant with his wounding presence that allows him to face his brother Esau. See, our wounding encounters with God reorient us to grace. We want to be careful here because there's a way for us to speak about this passage uh, and we can have kind of this, uh, this tone of these pious spiritualisms. We can speak vaguely about what it is to be wounded or to be in the presence of God. We can talk about things in ways that just might not even be biblical and we can take a narrative and we can so overinterpret it that we can insert a meaning that may or may not be there. And so this morning, I want to be careful and I want to say what the text says and I want to pull it out and see its complement in the New Testament. See, there are many ways in which we are like Jacob. Like Jacob, our sin draws us into conflict with a holy God. 
like Jacob, our sin draws us into conflict with a holy God. Because of our sinful nature, it stands contrary to a holy God. We ourselves are in natural conflict with God. We are at conflict with God until He calls us to faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. And we kind of feel the ongoing presence of that sinful nature. We find ourselves at conflict with God. We find ourselves exposed in our sin, and we we feel like we're at odds with Him. Uh, Paul describes that there's this war between the Holy Spirit inside the Christian and the sinful nature inside the Christian. And we'll always have that sinful nature until we go into God's presence. And as such, we find ourselves kind of wrestling with God at certain times. But also, like Jacob, we are wounded for God's redemptive purpose. As God exposes the state of our sinful hearts, He wounds us, so to speak. He gives us a sense of our inherent sinfulness. He stings us with the guilt of our sin to show us the joys of forgiveness in Christ. Like Jacob, we're renamed for new identity. Though God exposes us in our sinfulness, we are not left there. We are given a new name in Christ. This is what 2 Corinthians 5 says, right? Therefore, uh, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. We are to put or we are put to death with Christ and raised to newness of life. See, all of this, we recognize it, right? We see, okay, Jacob comes into the presence of God. His former way of life is not sufficient anymore. He's wounded by God. He's renamed by God. And that kind of, in some way, follows the story of our salvation, but Paul also kind of grabs onto this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The, screen, or the message or the passage will be on the screen in front of us here. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. Paul writes this, and he's, he's writing, and kind of in context, he's saying, this is uh, my calling as an apostle. And he's kind of been uh, what he calls boasting about the experiences that he's had. He's been uh, shipwrecked. He's been to all of these things. He's been to the third heaven. He's seen glorious things. And he kind of wraps it all together in verses 7 through 10. So he says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. We're familiar with this passage, aren't we? We see what's described here. We see that Paul has these great revelations and that he's given what what he calls a thorn in the flesh. And interpreters for years have kind of speculated on what this means. It could be a physical affliction. It could be a spiritual affliction. Whatever else. But Paul is describing something that was given to him for a specific purpose. In verse 7, he says, to keep me from getting conceited. We have a a notion of what the word conceited means, right? We developed it somewhere between our sophomore and junior years of high school when we first heard the word, and we applied it to all the people that we thought were better than us. They're conceited, right? 
And so we have this notion uh, of, of people who are stuck up or snotty, they are conceited. But what Paul is speaking of here is he's talking about someone who exalts himself. To keep me from exalting myself, I was given a thorn in the flesh. And I wonder this morning if what we might refer to as Jacob's hip, his woundedness, might also be similar to Paul's thorn in the flesh. See, Paul pleaded with God to take this thing away. In verse 8 he says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Three times Paul is petitioning Jesus, saying, Jesus, take this thing from me. I know you can heal. I know you can remove this. Please remove this from me. Yet God will not. And his response in verse 9 is so fitting. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is enough. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Is grace sufficient for us this morning? Is grace sufficient for you, for me, as we navigate the issues of our life? Is it enough to be a recipient of divine favor in Christ? Is it enough for us to be seated in the heavenly realms in Christ to, to face poverty and disease and whatever else might come about on this earth for us to be seated in the heavenly realms with Christ to be recipients of divine favor as Christ has taken our sin and paid its penalty and raised us to new life. We have a spiritual blessing which we await. Is it enough to be a recipient of grace? Are you willing to submit to the thorns of the flesh because of the grace and the sufficiency of grace in Christ. He goes on in verse 9, For my grace is sufficient for you. For what? My power, go back to that slide, Owen, my power is made perfect in weakness. Are you content to deal with the thorns of the flesh be a recipient of grace so that the power of God might show forth in front of you. You might say, practically speaking, what does that look like? Well, if we were to go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says that he came into the city of Corinth and he said, I knew nothing but Christ and Him crucified. And he did so specifically so that the power of God would be manifest, so that God would show Himself powerful and authoritative in His midst. He goes on and he spells out verse 10 or verse 9, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What kind of things will you face? Well, Paul says it right here, right? Weaknesses. You, as a Christian called to new life in Christ, you will be intentionally weak or unintentionally weak at some point in your life. This week I was reminded of I'm not a great husband sometimes. I'm kind of hard to live with in a lot of ways. I'm not a great pastor sometimes. I'm not a really good friend all the time. I'm, I'm hard to live with. I am beset by weakness. 
says insults. You go to the workplace and you share of your faith in Jesus Christ and you bear all of the reproach of the name of Christ. You face hardships, that is, economic hardships or disease or persecutions or calamities or whatever else it might be. You will be wounded. You will have that thorn in the flesh. You will face difficulty in Christ. See? Paul received a thorn, but God led Paul to see the sufficiency of grace. He thought about this, that your wounds, your difficulties, your hardships, they highlight the grace of God in your life. The difficult things we face, the hardships we go through, whether it's economic or spiritual or, or whatever else it might be, they highlight the grace of God in us. See, the cross-centered life is one marked by woundedness. Concerned. I, you know, I see this happen a lot of times with those who describe themselves as people of faith. And what, what they have is they have this kind of life that they go about where, where too many Christians view the cross as an escape from difficulty, as an escape from death. But the truth is that Christianity, in its truest form, calls us to constant self-denial and even death. The way we speak about our Christian faith is always victorious, always uh, rising above, always blessing, always getting more, doing better, having a good time, right? And what we find here in the life of Paul, in the life of Jacob, in the life of so many is a life of consistent self-denial. We miss the fact that tradition holds that the 12 disciples of Jesus, minus Judas who died, the 11 remaining disciples died a martyr's death or were exiled out of persecution. We miss the fact that Jesus called us to a life of self-denial. I want to just kind of submit to you four different marks of wounded, cross-centered Christianity. Wounded Christianity, cross-centered Christianity, boasts in weakness to highlight the power of God. It recognizes itself as weak, incapable, so that God's strength and might might be highlighted. This morning, like, I'm preaching these 25 pages of notes and everything else, but if the Spirit doesn't empower these words, you will never hear them. You'll never process them in a way that will create a spiritual inkling in your heart and mind. If, if the Spirit doesn't apply these words to your heart and to your being, you will just have these go in, in one ear and out the other. We preach in weakness. We speak in weakness. We witness in weakness, but it's the Spirit that brings about His power in believers, right? That's what Paul says. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for what? It's the power of God unto salvation. And so the mark of of wounded, cross-centered Christianity is boasting in weakness, highlighting God's power. Second mark, it welcomes difficulty so as to maximize holiness. 
We welcome difficulty and hardship. We don't search it out. We don't pick fights with people at work so we can call ourselves persecuted. But we welcome hardship and difficulty so as to maximize holiness. This is reflected in Romans 5 where Paul is saying, hey, recognize that the hardships that you face produce proven character and proven character hope and hope has its end in maturity. I think I just botched that verse because I tried it from memory, but it's there. Look it up. Romans chapter 5, verse 3. And so, it welcomes difficulty so as to maximize holiness. Do you recognize that the hard things in your life actually beckon you, call you to a priority in living a godly life? It strips away the impatience. It strips away uh, the clinging to sin. It rips your fingers off of your death hold on the things of this world, and it reorients your heart and your mind and your soul to the things of God. Third, the mark of wounded, cross-centered Christians, they prefer delayed gratification over immediate blessing. We don't live for the pleasures of this world. We live for the pleasures of a world to come, don't we? And so the wounded, cross-centered Christian denies himself in this world so that he can live in the next. Fourth, it exalts in God's justifying grace more than it delights in earthly ease. Cross-centered Christianity, wounded Christianity, exalts in justifying grace. Do you realize this morning that if you are in Christ, your eternity is secure? All of your sins, all of your wrongdoings have been stripped away, cast as far as east is from west. And so you can exist in a self-denying way. You can exist in a a dying-to-self kind of Christianity because you are assured grace from God. Let me ask you a question this morning. Does your God confront you? Does your God confront you? Does He wrestle with you in the twilight? Does He wrangle with you about the things that are obstinate to Him? Does He turn over the tables of your soul to reveal the things that are against Him so that He might bring about greater holiness in you? If you are not prepared to graciously confront the Labans of your life, if you are not prepared to humbly approach your Esau's, if you are not prepared to have God undo you at the hip, then might I be so bold as to suggest another religion to help you pass the years? Because the God of Jacob, the risen Jesus Christ, is preparing us for an eternity with Him. It's in His presence that we find grace in our time of need. It's before Him that we approach with confidence. But we also recognize that He wants to strip away the sinful parts of us. That He wants to renew us in our nature to make us more like His Son, Jesus Christ. I want to pray to that end that God would shape and form us. That we'd be a people who look for holiness 
come into the presence of God, see our sinfulness, and yet come away renamed and blessed. Let's go before our God. Lord, we, we ask you that you would do those very things, that you would strip away the sinfulness, expose us for what we are in our self-reliance. Like Jacob, you would rename us, not according to our past sins, but give us grace and mercy in your presence and invite us to live out our identity. Lord, you have blessed us in the heavenly realms. You have given us so much. We thank you for it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.